0: Welcome to the Paul Post Podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or C-Post, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at ProfPaulPost. Where to begin? That's my first question. Where to begin?
1: Okay, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot going on right now. Um, Biden is very busy with the Zoom calls right now. In that he, of course, had that Zoom call yesterday with Putin, and they talked about a variety of issues, but by and large, it was about the situation in Ukraine. Of course, we could talk a well lot about that, and then tomorrow. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday the 8th. So this is the day before the beginning of his much touted Summit for Democracy, right? And this is going to be a two-day affair, again, o- virtual affair. I don't know if they're using Zoom. I imagine they're using Zoom. I, I saw some people joking about that. Are they using Zoom? Are they using Teams? This is very important stuff, right? But uh, there's a lot to unpack regarding that, like what is actually the goal of it? What, what does one hope that comes out of that? So there's, you know, these are two very big events in the in international politics, in diplomacy right now, and they're both worth talking about and kind of thinking about what's gonna, what's going to come out of both, what are the goals of both, are they meaningful? Obviously, the Ukraine situation has higher stakes, but I should say that both of these events, whether it was the discussion with Putin yesterday or this summit for democracy, have similar objectives, And at least in my view, and we can talk about what those are.
0: Let's start with Putin. What was President Biden's message to Putin?
1: in a nutshell stop bullying ukraine at least that's that seems to be the message or don't bully them more than you're already bullying them that's probably a more accurate statement of of what the actual message was that of course this is the situation that's been going on since 2014 when russia first invaded and took control of Crimea. And since then, Russia has continued to lend military support and actual military presence in Eastern Ukraine as part of a secessionist effort there from Ukraine as a whole. And as a result, Western Ukraine, Kiev, has been countering this. They've been doing it with assistance from the West, specifically NATO, and even more specifically the United States. I think most people in the United States are at least somewhat familiar with this entire thing, though U.S. people in the U.S. tend not to pay too much attention to foreign policy. This is one issue that I think most people in the U.S. have some view on because, lest we forget, this was the basis for the first impeachment of President Trump, was about U.S. assistance to Ukraine, and of course he was impeached over the idea that he had held back that assistance in order to receive political gain, specifically to have Zelensky start an investigation or at least announce an investigation into Biden. And this was during the campaign. So, this was why, they, you know, so I think most Americans are at least familiar. But the point to saying that is that this situation, this crisis has been going on for a number of years. But so why suddenly are they having this? summit, and why is Biden making the statement of don't do more than than what's already been done? Well, what's been happening is this is now the second time in, in less than a year that Russia has amassed a large number of troops at the border between Russia and Ukraine. I think approximately 90,000 troops right now. And the concern is that that is going to be a full-on invasion into eastern Ukraine. Then not just occupy, but even annex eastern Ukraine, just as Russia had done with Crimea. Now, the difference is with Crimea, it was accomplished through what we call a theta complete, that just the little green men, as they called them, just kind of stormed right in, took control of it, no shots fired. That would not be the case this time. It would spark much higher level of conflict than what we're already seeing. Again, I wanna emphasize there is conflict happening. There is actual fighting. There is a war happening in Eastern Ukraine. The concern is this would escalate it further. This would take it potentially to the level of direct conflict, direct military conflict between Russia and NATO. Not indirect conflict, not a proxy war as we've been witnessing so far, but direct military conflict. And in that way, the situation right now has some echoes to July of 1914. I think people who are at least somewhat familiar with the onset of World War I would know that yes, World War I started because of a crisis in the Balkans, but it's important to recognize that, that crisis didn't come out of nowhere. There had been a war between the Balkan states in 1913. There had been a war in 1912. It had been an ongoing conflict, one that Russia had involvement with, one that Germany had involvement with. And then in July 1914, the situation became tense enough that there was concerns of a escalation, further escalation, a new conflict, and one that would be even at a higher scale than the preceding conflicts. And so I think that's... One scenario that people have concerned about have concerns about is that this the pattern that we're witnessing here is very similar and that there's been an ongoing conflict and that the concern is now that there could be full it could go to the full scale level of major power war. So that's the, those are the stakes and that's the reason why Biden and Putin had this summit. But that's also why I phrased it as what was Biden's message. His message wasn't don't bully Ukraine. They're already bullying Ukraine. There's already conflict going on there. Both sides are already involved. The question is not letting it escalate to the level of becoming direct major power war. There's a high level of concern that that's what's going to happen.
0: Putin's response would be, so what are you going to do about it?
1: That's right. It's one thing for Biden to say, don't go any further. It's another thing to say, and then what? Like, what are you going to do? Now, according to what I have heard, and this is not just what I've heard, this is what's been shared by the White House, as well as by the Kremlin, that essentially the message was, if Russia does choose to escalate the situation invade, the United States will issue a very strong letter, right? No, they're going to First of all, I'll go with essentially the nuclear option, if you will, not with weapons, but with economic sanctions, that apparently what they're proposing is to cut off Russia fully from what's called the SWIFT clearing system. This is something that really gets into the weeds, but essentially any international transaction has to be cleared through the SWIFT system, and the U- SWIFT system is dollar-oriented. And so the U.S. could just cut that off. It's, it's it's very fascinating from the standpoint of thinking about the intersection of security affairs, economic sanctions, and this idea of what's called weaponized interdependence, which is a, an idea that has gained a lot of attention over the past few years. And the notion behind weaponized interdependence is that the U.S. is kind of a, has a central role in a lot of the networks, economic networks in the international system. And so they can leverage that. And using the SWIFT system is one of the examples of the for it. So that's one of the threats that's been made, is that if you do this, we're going to cut you off from the SWIFT. System. And this is, again, this is like would really undermine Russia's ability to carry out international transactions. So that's one threat. The other one is an escalation of US military assistance and NATO military assistance to Ukraine. So kind of, um, again, they've already been doing this. They would raise it to another level. What has not been put out on table, or at least it's not clear that's been put out on the table, um, because even Jake Sullivan said, we don't want to necessarily have this debated in the public sphere, is the extent to which the US would directly send troops or even airstrikes Something of that nature. To what extent would the US directly become involved? And then at that point, you have a major power war between Russia and the United States by proxy Russia and NATO. So that's the concern. That's that's kind of the concern about these measures. The measures we know about wouldn't entail that, but there's concern that that's still on the table. And so that would be what would happen, at least what Biden said to Putin, what would happen if. Russia does actually
0: fade. In the White House briefing room there was certainly a lot of dancing around that third option. What is the reluctance there? I mean you got plenty you you've got plenty of spare troops hanging around right now, right?
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you got they're just looking for you know, we we've, we've withdrawn from Afghanistan, we can reorient assets that way. What makes Ukraine very complicated goes back quite a ways and that is the the notion of NATO membership and whether Ukraine is should become a formal NATO member or whether it is de facto a NATO member. And so let's unpack both of those. So after the Cold War, and we don't need to get into this whole debate, but we can at least touch on it. But after the Cold War, of course the cold NATO is largely a creation of the Cold War to counter Soviet aggression in Europe. Well, once the Cold War ended during the 1990s, there was first of all a view that NATO would disappear. But then when it didn't disappear, there was a thought, well, is it going to expand? Are these other countries going to want to join? And by other countries, meaning countries that used to be part of the Warsaw Pact, which was the Soviet answer to NATO. And there's a lot of debates amongst historians, amongst IR scholars about whether there was actually a promise to not do That there was a promise by the United States to not expand NATO. Now, again, we don't need to get into all of the, into that full debate. But needless to say, what did happen was in 1999, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic all joined NATO. Then in 2004, you have a variety of other countries joining NATO, most notably the Baltic states of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. And the reason why they're most notable is they were former Soviet republics. So whereas the other countries were Central European countries, Eastern European countries, they remember the Warsaw Pact, they were not formally part of the Soviet Union, but the Baltic states were. And so that was kind of like, that was a game changer in some ways that suddenly NATO is now bringing in countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, that used to be, if you wanna say it this way, it used to be part of Russia. The reason why that's a game changer is because Russia, you could understand from Russia's perspective about how they're not thrilled that NATO is expanding eastward, but maybe they feel like there's not much they can do about it. But once you start bringing in former Soviet republics, boy, that starts to look a little more aggressive. Well, Ukraine is in that same camp. Georgia is in that same camp. And there was a war between Georgia and Russia back in 2008 in a one factor that precipitated that conflict was the perception that Georgia was going to gain membership to NATO. And so what you could say is that kind of like after the Baltic states were able to join, it was like, no more. We're not going to allow this to happen anymore. And we're surely not going to allow it to happen with countries that maybe are even considered more central to Russian identity, and that being countries like Georgia, countries like Ukraine. So that's the broader context is preventing Ukraine from becoming part of the West, if you will, and more specifically joining NATO, joining the EU. And then you suddenly have these countries right on their border that no longer are serving kind of this buffer, but are now actually part of this, again, military apparatus that in many ways was created precisely for the purpose of countering Russia. You can understand it from Russia's perspective about why they wouldn't be thrilled with NATO involvement in Ukraine. Now, the question is, would Ukraine actually become a member? And this is where the Biden administration has been ambiguous. You know, there's been times we said, no, they're not going to, but they're like, oh, we can't close the door. We can't close that window on everybody. And then, of course, NATO has been providing assistance to Ukraine, which makes them look like a de facto member. Right? that even though they're not an actual member, so hence they're not under what we call the Article 5 agreement of defending them, being, they've been receiving assistance. And so you can, you can view this from Russia's perspective of why they would be wary of what the true intentions are of the United States, what the true intentions are of NATO.
0: In these states, Ukraine, Georgia, Russia runs a lot of interference through media campaigns and disinformation campaigns. What do they get out of that?
1: This is the, if you will, cyber operations have absolutely been a a critical part of what Russia's been doing in Ukraine. And they've been doing this for a few reasons. Number one, it's to help build support. It's to, part of this has been, part of their campaign has been to try to and this is, this is an old tactic, right? This, is, this has nothing to do with cyber. This is cyber is the latest tool used to it, but it's to try to portray Ukraine or convince people that Ukraine is actually more the aggressor, right? And, and maybe that is by taking a certain stance on what I was just talking about, about you know the, the Ukraine seeking to join NATO and NATO having its views of you know, wanting to oppress Russia. I mean, you could put forward that kind of narrative, but there's lots of ways that the Russian government can use a misinformation campaign to kind of portray Ukraine as an aggressor as opposed to what I think is a more legitimate way of viewing Ukraine, which is they're caught between, the two, right? They truly are a, what we would call a buffer state, and that that was a lot of times their role, but there's a buffer between Russia and the West. And I think in this situation, what you've seen is a lot of folks in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, would lean more towards wanting to have relations with the West, wanting to have relations with NATO, wanting to have relations with the EU. And that's on the one hand, they're a sovereign state, that's their decision. And of course, as I talked about, NATO and the EU have not done anything to fully dispel that. But that's different than being an aggressor. You know, if you want to get down to aggressors, like at the end of the day, Russia was the one that sent troops into Crimea back in 2014. And The bigger issue, in my view, is that the U.S. didn't draw a hard line at that time. I think the most they did was some sanctions, and they kicked Russia out of the G8. That's why it's the G7 again. But could there have been more that was done to show that that was unacceptable? I don't think there was. And so as a result, Russia feels like they can continue to push, continue to push. And by pushing, meaning putting forward not just the military action but also these campaigns, these military these disinformation campaigns to kind of portray them as being the ones who are in the right.
0: Moving on, the summit, what's happening with that?
1: This summit for democracy is actually not totally separate from what we were just talking about. First of all, what is this thing? So what this is, is this is gonna take place on December 9th, December 10th. The 110 countries are participating as well as a variety of other actors, I think some NGOs are participating. And that's about the best we can say about what it is, right? And the reason why is I actually had a, a, a Twitter last week where I said, "You the summit of democracy is neither a summit, summit, nor is it about democracy. And first of all, the reason why I said it's not a summit is I was being a bit pedantic, but I was just saying that, well, it, a summit means literally that. It is the top leaders, it is the leaders of the government, and that, it, that's all that's needing and that's all who are meeting. And it's usually a smaller group. It doesn't have to just be bilateral, like a Reagan-Gorbachev. It could be um, like the G7 summit, that is actual summit because it's the actual leaders meeting. But this one is broader than that. Um, It's not even clear all the countries are gonna have necessarily their leaders there. So it's not technically a summit. And then is it about democracy? Well, at least that's what's being put forward, is that this is about having conversations of what is needed support democracy globally and within these countries and abroad. And you can see that as being like key for the United States, US and Biden administration, of course, are the ones that are leading this this effort and organized this summit. And so it's about renewal of democracy within these countries, as well as promotion of democracy outside of these countries, about thinking about all these facets of democracy. But why do I say that it's not really about democracy? Well, I think there's a couple of indicators about why this isn't really about democracy. First of all, you could look at the list of invitees and you could say, well, I'm not sure how, like, if you're going to have a conversation about democracy, I'm not sure this is the group of countries to start with. That could be, because some of these countries have questionable democratic, but "questionable" might be a light term, questionable democratic um, credentials. But I think actually there's a more obvious answer about why this isn't about democracy. And the reason why is And this is something that I actually wrote about last year in a blog post, was if you go back to last year when Mike Pompeo was Secretary of State, he was speaking, he gave a series of talks, series of addresses during the summer of 2020 where he was it was basically laying out what would be the Trump administration, a second Trump administration's China policy. And one of the things he talked about was creating an alliance of democracies. So we need to have an alliance of democracies that will counter China and Russia. What's interesting about that is that was echoing a phrase that had appeared in 2019 in a foreign affairs piece by Robert Kagan and Anthony Blinken. Anthony Blinken, now the current Secretary of State, where they use the phrase League of Democracies in a similar way. We need to have a League of Democracies to help promote these values, democratic values in the face of growing aggression by Russia and China. Same idea. And you could even trace this back further to a report that was put forward back in the mid-2000s, the Princeton Project on the Future of Democracy, which was written by John Eikenberry, and Anne Marie Slaughter, of course, Eikenberry had been, you know, they're both Princeton, they were both Princeton professors at the time, but Eikenberry had been in um, the State Department's policy planning. And Anne-Marie Slaughter, a few years later, under the Obama administration, became director of policy planning. And they put forward the idea of a concert of democracies, right? That if you need a concert of democracies to help secure the liberal order against, say, incursions by countries like Russia. At the time, it was still ambiguous about what China would be. So for me, this is about trying to foster a coalition of countries that could be committed to countering, balancing whatever phrase you want to use, China and Russia going forward. And that's really the criteria for inclusion in this group, is are you interested in doing that? And it just so happens that it loosely ties to democracy. But what it really is, is that you are not Russia and you're not China. That's my view of what this is about. And so that's why the summit for democracies is very much related to what we were just talking
0: about. Okay, let's tackle both sides of that. It's not a summit. It's a, I'll get my people to talk to your people. What would be the point in that?
1: Well that's <laughs> that's the that's the big criticism of it. Uh, and you know this isn't just my criticism. This is a criticism I've seen of folks who I think are even more who are even closer to this process who are kind of like I'm not real sure what's intended to be the goal of this. Like you know especially given the number of participants it's hard to get the G7 countries. And the G7 countries are a good baseline for thinking about this because the G7 countries are all democratic You could say they're all Democratic, they're all Western. And as a result, you would think that they could come up with like pretty solid plan of what they wanna do important. And even then they have trouble when they issue their communiques at the end of these summits, they have trouble coming up with like solid concrete things to agree upon. And this isn't unique to Trump. Of course, during the Trump year, there was some really hard meetings of the G7 because Trump didn't get along with a lot of them. But even then it's like the extent to which the G7 I think, like the one they didn't even issue a joint communique, but it's like, even if you look at these joint communiques, it's rare that they actually do anything concrete. There's a few instances historically, the Plaza Accord being an example where maybe the G7 did something, but by and large, no. So that's a group of seven countries, pretty good relations, pretty similar ideology. Security relationships, you know, they're all strong allies in the U.S., they're either NATO members, or, you know, in the case of Japan, they're, you know, strong, long-standing alliance, economic relations, and they have trouble reaching an agreement on things, let alone now bringing together 110 countries. All of them are just way different in terms of what their objectives are. This is basically on the order of having the General Assembly, U.N. General Assembly, coming together, and the U.N. General Assembly, Usually, their declarations. First of all, they're not binding in any ways. But I mean, you know, we can get it a whole debate about the bindingness of any declaration or, or treaty. But they're usually pretty watered down. It's hard to like come up with anything concrete for it. Look at what just happened recently with the cop 26 climate summit. I mean, that was intended just on one issue. And even then it was hard to like come up with anything concrete. So I just, I'm not sure what's really going to come out of this other than a statement of like, we want to recommit ourselves to the pursuit of democratic values at home and abroad. I mean, they're going to have some statement like that and to take what measures are needed to, what would it be like, you know, efforts to undermine democracy at home and abroad but they're not gonna explicitly mention China. They're not gonna explicitly mention Russia, even though those are parts of it. So I think it's exactly, I think it's a totally fair point to say, what what could actually come out of this? And I just think there's gonna be a lot of speeches, there's gonna be a lot of talking, there's not gonna be anything much concrete that's gonna come out of it.
0: The other problem is the means that they're using to have it on a Zoom call or a Teams call or whatever they're gonna do it on, maybe they're just gonna go Skype or whatever, Most of these summits, meetings, conferences, call them what you want. Most of the work is done in the bar after the supporting done. It's it's the discussions that you have beyond the public gaze. Are they going to create these side rooms that you can do on Zoom? Like, how are they going to make this happen? Hey, let's send out the pizza and everyone sit and have a pizza at the same time.
1: Yeah, I mean, this isn't exactly right. I mean, that's the case with the G seven, right? The, the G, you know, even in that case, there you're dealing with seven countries, and most of the work is done. First of all, there's a lot of work done by the second kind of the level below, you know, and they refer to them as Sherpas, right? You know, they do all the work they carry and they bring all the agenda and so. stuff. And they're doing all this work behind the scenes, but also, yeah, a lot of the discussions are those discussions that are happening before the photo op, when they're sitting there talking, when they go to afterwards in the hall, you know, before the formal sessions happen. And I mean, this is something that I think everybody can experience, everybody can relate to, because we all know how Zoom works or Skype, but it's like you have the formal meeting, but you miss out on the informal conversations that a lot of times are extremely productive. I mean, just like, for example, if we have a faculty meeting, it's one thing to have a faculty meeting, but I, what I miss is usually after the faculty meeting, like myself and say someone else will start talking and we're walking back to my office and that's where we'll say, oh, okay, well, you know, let's, let's, let's follow up on that. Let's do this thing here and we'll, we'll do that. And it, you get a little bit more concrete because you're just talking with that person, but it didn't light of the conversation, the broader conversation that was just had. That's like one very small example of a real process that happens with all sorts of meetings, definitely with diplomatic meetings, and that's just not going to be there. And yes, you could create little breakout rooms, but how do you make those? Like you have 110 countries involved. How are you going to? What, what are the breakout rooms going to be? You're just going to randomly assign? That's not going to work. So I just don't. I just don't see much concrete coming out of this. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing to have done, but I think it's very important to recognize that, you know, we have to temper any expectations, even if there are expectations, we have to temper those about what this means for our Are
0: we looking at here that look, hey guys, we can't travel, but we have got to be seen to be doing something, and. This is about the best we can do. The same with faculty meetings.
1: I think there's something. Yeah, I think there's something to it. I mean, it, it, there's something to this idea that holding this. So you could ask, what is the value of doing something like this, right? And, and in terms of like what's the signaling value of it? What 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 message is it sending? Even if that's all that can be done. And even if that message is not concrete. But, but maybe holding the meeting itself has some value for signaling something. So first of all, it does signal that the Biden administration and Joe Biden in particular has made renewal of American democracy a key part of their platform, and and renewal of the promotion of democracy abroad, at least maybe not necessarily the George W. Bush way of doing it, but a key part of their of their platform. And so this is one way of showing that yes, we're trying to do
0: things along this line,
1: the ever effort type of um, uh, summit in that way. The other thing it does is you know, if, if the Biden administration doesn't want to shy away from the uh, anti-China, anti-Russia objective of this summit, then it could send a fairly strong signal of, look, here's this 110 countries that got together and are not too keen on what you're doing, even if nothing concrete comes out of it. For example, Taiwan is part of this. That's a huge signal about kind of what the U.S.'s view is respect to, with respect to what this is supposed to accomplish. And if you have other countries that are, say, willing to sign on to some sort of statement, and Taiwan is also willing to sign on to that, that de facto recognition by those other countries of Taiwan as an autonomous entity, if not a sovereign state, that's very big in terms of a signal that could be sent. So I, yes, I do think that there's a bit of just wanting to show that we're doing work, we're trying to get things done, but there could be some value in terms of the signal and the message that's sent by having this summit. But beyond that, there's not going to be anything concrete that's going to happen.
0: So you've got this summit, and the solution seems to be rebadging the Alliance Concert League of Democracy. At what point do you say we need some new fresh thinking here, what are your students saying about this sort of thing.
1: It's interesting to think about the perspective of say people who have grown up with really their entire memory being that the US is at war in Iraq and Afghanistan and that these wars, first of all, they're not even necessarily sure why we are involved in these wars, but once they start to find out, oh wait, this has something to do with democracy promotion. That seems like a bad idea. And then with kind of a, the time when they really start to become aware of international politics or just politics in general was during the Trump administration, right? You know, you think about people who are in college right now, they really, you know, they're in high school and it's the, it's during the Trump administration. It's during the Trump years. And regardless of the views of their family and regardless of their own personal views regarding Trump, there's absolutely no doubt that it led to, well, as people are calling it, polarization, right? There's no doubt about that, that there's these more polarized views. Um, you know, I personally think there's a little bit of a, I think a little bit of it is over overplayed, I think, but still there's no doubt that there can be an awareness of this. And I think that what it's done is it's led to some even more skepticism about the whole process, right? You know, like what really, you know, it is the U.S. this shining city on a hill, right? We are very far gone from end of history rhetoric, shining city on a hill, indispensable nation. I don't think anybody in that demographic, the Gen Z demographic, if you will, buys that rhetoric, right? I, at least in terms of how the US currently is constituted. Now, would they have like, yes, we could do better? Maybe, but I just think that they, I think they, they would find the whole thing like, I'm not so sure about this. I think they have a greater awareness of the flaws in the US American, uh, or the, it, flaws in the US political system and the flaws in U.S. democracy than maybe many folks uh, prior generations
0: have. President Biden has uh, met Putin, and at least online. He's got a virtual summit happening, bringing together all these countries all together. Is the world a safer place now?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Is the world a safer place? Is there, I think one way to answer that question is, is there less threat of a major war now than there was yesterday? And the answer might be yes, but is there less threat of a major war now than there was, say, 30 years ago? I think the answer is probably no. I think there's a greater threat, greater risk of a major war now than there was uh, 30 years ago. You know, I think Bob Cohane, in a recent annual review of political science piece, talked about how the 1990s were an, equal easy time to study international cooperation because it was like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, end of history, the end of the Cold War, no big major, and it's true, but what that did is that led people to then start to set aside and think that security issues weren't really a prominent uh, concern anymore, and the past decade and definitely the past, well, hence going back to what we're talking about at the beginning here, since 2014, We suddenly get this like wake up call of, oh, it seems like geopolitical issues, major power conflict is not a thing of the past. And we are absolutely in a day and age where I think that is more evident than it was say 30 years ago.